Welcome, I'm Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. And joining me today is Stuart Eisendrath. Stuart is uh, MD, uh, and he was the founding director of the University of California, San Francisco Depression Center, where he was professor of psychiatry. He was the principal investigator of the National Institute of Health National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicines, Practicing Alternatives to Heal Depression Study, which actually is a very impressive study that we talk about on this show. Uh, He has a long uh, personal and professional interest in mindfulness meditation and applying it to mood and anxiety disorders. He's written extensively about the use of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy in countries throughout the world. His most recent book, When Antidepressants Aren't Enough, Harnessing the Power of Mindfulness to Alleviate Depression, takes the reader through the steps they can utilize ultimately to gain relief from depression and anxiety, Uh, written in a controversial, uh, conversational voice, sorry. (laughs) It is based on uh, extensive clinical research and experience that offers an evidence-based approach to empowering the reader. So Stuart and I dive into talking a little bit about antidepressants, talking about, you know, the the field of medicine and just a little bit to start off with um, a little bit about the environment and the culture that we find ourselves in that is so quick to prescribe medication uh, when sometimes it's not necessary. And we talk about some of the mindfulness-based practices that people can use to alleviate depression, to alleviate anxiety. We talk about uh, some of the components that go into it. And Stuart has a really interesting approach because everything that he talks about in his book and on this show is really entrenched in the research that he has done over the last few decades. Uh, so his his approach is really based uh, from, a, from a research perspective. So we go into antidepressants, we talk about mindfulness, uh, we talk about depression, we talk about some of the things that lead to it and how you can use this mindfulness uh, to get yourself into a healthier and better place. And what I want to say is, regardless of whether you are struggling with depression or anxiety, uh, the mindfulness practices that Stuart lays out are really wonderful, and they can elevate your your cognitive levels, your mental health and wellness, regardless of where you feel like you are at. Even if you feel like you're doing great and wonderful, uh, there's always room for expansion. So I hope that you dive in. I hope you take some notes from this one. I've really enjoyed uh, this episode with Stuart. And just a few housekeeping notes before before we dive into the episode here with Stuart. Um, just a quick reminder that we have the Get the Love You Want course starting in January 8th. It's right around the corner. It is the last time that Vienna and I will be doing this course with live sessions. Uh, you can do the course from the comfort of your own home. So if you're wanting to start the year off right, right, we talk about family systems. We dive into communication, boundaries, conflict, uh, deepening sex and intimacy, and some of those pieces. And there's a, a good amount of homework. You can do this course on your own. You don't have to be in a relationship. But if you are, you can do it with your partner. It's wonderful. And the people, the hundreds and hundreds of almost thousands of people that have done this in the past really, really love this program. So check that out on Instagram at Mantox or at MindfulMFT. It's in both of our links in the bio. Uh, January 7th will be the last day to sign up because we start on January 8th. Quick reminder for all the guys that are out there, we have the men's weekend 
in Vancouver on the uh, West Coast, and the Sunshine Coast, that is live. It is over half sold out. If you're interested in joining us in March, definitely check that out online. If you have any questions, hit me up on Instagram. And finally, just a quick reminder that Vienna and I are doing a one-day couples-only workshop here in New York City uh, that will be focusing in on the tools and the experiences of developing and deepening your intimacy with your partner and really overcoming some of the pesky uh, patterns of conflict that seem to show up in relationships. So it's going to be an experiential workshop. We're only taking 20 couples and it is almost sold out. So if you want to join us, sign up quickly and we'll hopefully see you in New York. So with all that in mind, thank you so much for tuning in and please welcome uh, Mr. Stuart Eisendrath. Thanks for having me. It's it's uh, interesting because a few people have actually uh, recommended your work and uh, and recommended this book, and so I'm excited to to dive into some of the the content that you've put out. And um, but before we dive into that, and before we start talking about some of these pieces of you know depression and mindfulness, I have to start by asking the question uh, that I ask all my guests, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Well. Uh, one defining moment I had in, in learning about mindfulness was uh, a retreat I went to uh, back east uh, about 20 years ago. I'd had some experience with mindfulness, but I'd never been on a retreat before. I'd come to the retreat from California, and I was it was my first experience with a silent retreat that went on for seven days. And after about the first day, I was I really found myself getting kind of agitated about uh, being there and what it was like to not be able to talk to people and uh, not be able to get the normal kind of social support that uh, you get from people. I thought to myself, boy, this is, this is going to be rough, and uh, I don't particularly want to uh, stay here for the rest of the week. And then, uh, as it, as it went on, uh, one of the, the teachers said something at the end of the first or second day. I think it was the first day. We should all try to be there for the, uh, first meditation of the morning, which started at six o'clock, which was really three o'clock my time. And they, wake you up about an hour before so you can get ready. So that was two o'clock my time. And I really felt irritated about that and like, holy cow, this is really a lot to deal with. And uh, I became, as I say, quite agitated about, about the, the layout of the program. And uh, I thought of leaving, but then I really uh, had an insight that uh, I had created this whole story in my mind about the process there, and it was all in my mind. It wasn't that there was anything nefarious going on, but it was rather my interpretation of it. Now, because it was silent and there was plenty of time for meditation, both sitting meditation and walking meditation, I really learned that uh, I had created all of these thoughts about the situation and uh, once I did that and sort of was able to observe myself generating these thoughts, uh, my agitation rapidly diminished and I was able to continue the meditation retreat and feel a lot better by it and found it to be one of the most powerful experiences of my life. 
Wonderful. And it sounds like you were at a uh, sort of like a traditional Vipassana retreat. Is that is that accurate? Yes, it, it was the one in Barrie, Massachusetts. Nice. Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I love the way you, you descri- described it, because I think that's how a lot of our you know, sort of challenges arrive and arise. And I think that will probably play into what we're going to talk about. So I'm I'm curious what prompted you to write this book. So the book is called When Antidepressants Aren't Enough harnessing the power of mindfulness to alleviate depression. And I am, I'm curious why you, you sort of focused in on antidepressants them, themselves and, and sort of going beyond that. So maybe just to inform us a little bit of that. I headed the UCSF uh, Depression Center. What we found in treating many people with depression is that antidepressants uh, can be life-saving and very helpful for people, but that the reality is that not all people respond to antidepressants or respond very well. And in fact, in the largest study of antidepressant treatment, if you treat people with an antidepressant after 12 weeks, 30% of people will have recovered. If you give those people a second antidepressant, in the next 12 weeks, another 20% will recover. So at the end of 24 weeks, you have 50% of people who have recovered, but that means you have 50% who haven't. And we really wanted to, that, that was our experience with people. And we wanted to really provide those people who hadn't recovered with alternatives that they could bring to the their suffering. So we developed the Practicing Alternatives to Heal Depression Study, where we taught the individuals uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy to be one technique that could empower them uh, to diminish their own suffering. Wonderful. And I, I'm I'm curious in terms of, um, I mean, it sounds like antidepressants can have a, a really significant impact. Um, I'm curious for, for you and the studies that you've done in the research, where have you found antidepressants to be the most effective? Because I know for a lot of people, for myself as a Canadian uh, in America, <laughs> I often find that that the sort of prescription culture here is quite different than in than in some other cultures, um, and and I notice that there's sometimes a, a propensity or predilection to to just sort of uh, hand out antidepressants when there are symptoms of depression. So, for you and and the research that you've done, where have you found antidepressants to really um, have a substantial impact, and and when should people start to consider antidepressants versus more traditional means, um, like some of the stuff that you're going to outline in this book? Most antidepressants, in, at least in this country, are prescribed not by psychiatrists but by primary care physicians. Primary care physicians are on the front line of treating people for all kinds of problems, and so when they come across depression and they want to treat it, uh, it's very easy to say, okay, let's try an antidepressant. It may be harder to refer that person to a, a specialist, a psychotherapist or psychiatrist due to insurance purposes or logistical issues. So an antidepressant is often the first choice for a primary care physician and for uh, people in the mental health area as well. Because antidepressants are effective in a number of people, they're more rapidly acting than other forms of treatment, such as psychotherapy. 
So people may respond to an antidepressant in two to four weeks. So they're useful uh, for when the person is in a great deal of distress and uh, their caregiver wants to try to provide something that will give them a relief as soon as possible. So they're very useful to have available. But as I say, they're not fully effective in many people. So we need to have other options available for them. Mm. And maybe we can just sort of go into um, some of the components of, of depression because it's, you know, it's a widely talked about thing and this um, disease. I don't know if you would classify it as a disease, but it's a, it's a condition that many people are, are suffering with and it's, it's starting to come out uh, quite a bit more and more. And in your book, you talk about the nature of the depression beast. And I would love for you to just sort of um, unpack what, what that nature is and, and maybe how it shows up in differently in different people. Well, uh, there are certain common symptoms of depression or signs of depression that occur uh, in the majority of people who suffer depression. And these are things like altered sleep, uh, traditionally early, early morning awakening, uh, but it can be excessive sleep, uh, alterations in appetite, either up or down, loss of energy, loss of concentration, sad mood, of course. Uh, suicidal thoughts, uh, lack of ability to enjoy things, what we call anhedonia. So you have a number of uh, constitutional or physical kinds of symptoms that occur in depression. But what also occurs in depression, and people don't recognize this as uh, frequently, are cognitive symptoms of depression. So the people start to generate negative thoughts, thoughts like, I'm not a good person. Uh, I'll always be a failure. Other people are doing better than me. And a whole series of negative thoughts that get uh, generated in depression. And then if the person believes those thoughts, it worsens the depression. Because if you feel you're not a good person, well, it's not far to see that you would end up getting more depressed. And we find that there are about 30 main thoughts that people in depression get. And for any one person, they can have their own top 10, sort of the Letterman's top 10 thoughts that bother them the most and that occur in their form of depression. And so mindfulness-based cognitive therapy helps the person to identify they're having depressive thoughts and helps them break the cycle of those thoughts, in turn, generating more depression. And I think one of the interesting things that I've seen starting to be talked about more and, and transpiring more in modern-day culture is what I, I think a lot of people have referred to as sort of like the, the existential crisis, you know, a lack of meaning, a lack of purpose, a lack of feeling like um, someone feels like they have a uh, really significant value or contribution to maybe their family or their community. Do you feel like there's or, or you know, does the research show that there's a difference between an existential crisis or lacking a sort of an existential purpose and depression? Or is that a contributing factor to depression? Well, I would say it can certainly be related and be a contributing factor. If there's a stress of 
some type, whether it's uh, a situation that is difficult for the person to handle or an existential crisis that they're having, those can be stresses that affect the person and can be precipitants for a depressive episode. So uh, they can certainly uh, play a role in activating depression. And what we find is that people vary in their ability to handle stress. And that may, in fact, even be genetic. There are some studies that suggest that uh, there are certain chromosomal patterns, certain gene patterns, in which some people with certain uh, genetic loading are more resilient to stress, whereas other people who have a different uh, set of genetic uh, markers are actually more vulnerable to stress. So that stress can be really any type. It can be existential. It can be uh, situational. And people may vary in their ability to uh, tolerate that stress with or without becoming depressed. Interesting. And, and so for, for you and some of the research that, that you've done over, over the years, um, and because depression is such a hugely talked about topic, is, are there certain things that you have seen that most people don't understand about depression or is, are there sort of misleading um, mainstream quote unquote facts about depression? Because I think the, one of the challenges that I see a lot of people facing when, when it comes to this conversation, it comes to this topic. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that you and I are recording this on international men's health day. Uh, and it's a, it's a big topic of conversation, um, you know, in the community that, that I run. Um, but there does seem to be an, an abundance of information and, and some of it's quite sort of clicky and, and buzzwords and, and whatnot. So from your perspective, what don't most people understand and, and are there sort of misleading mainstream things that we need to be aware of when it comes to depression? Well, there are a number of things that people don't often understand about depression. I mean, one is that it's really uh, one of the most common illnesses that people suffer. On any given day, the World Health Organization estimates there are 300 million people suffering from depression. So it's very common. And it's really a, a very much of a challenge for our health system because depression usually starts early in a person's life and then unfortunately relapses over a period of uh, years for that person. So it is really the number one cause of disability in the world. I'd say that's one important thing to recognize. It's not just a person, you know, uh, suffering silently. It really causes more disability than other forms of illness like cancer or heart disease. So it's a tremendously powerful uh, detriment to the global health. And people need to realize that and take the treatment very seriously because it's so disabling. And I think that's important for people to recognize. The other important thing is related to what I mentioned before, that thoughts in depression tend to generate more depression and depression tends to generate thoughts. People often don't recognize when they're having negative thoughts that they're not true. They're just thoughts. They're not facts. People who are, are suffering from depression tend to believe their thoughts as if they're facts. And so when they have a comment like, I'm not a good person, they tend to believe it. And that worsens their depression without recognizing that uh, 
those thoughts are just thoughts. Uh, when I, I experienced some depression early in my career, as part of my depression, I had uh, quite a few guilty thoughts. And I spent a lot of time with my therapist trying to tease out what I was feeling guilty about. Had I committed some crime or some type of uh, action that was worthy of such guilt? And until I realized that uh, those guilty thoughts were in fact not something I had to pursue the cause of, but they were really merely the symptom of depression, that people with depression suffer guilty thoughts, just as a person with pneumonia suffers a high fever. And if you treat the depression, those guilty thoughts melt away. Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, the interesting thing there is you, you mentioned guilt and um, things like guilt and shame, if I'm not mistaken, they're, they're sort of the uh, inhibiting emotions, right, where they inhibit us from from really experiencing whatever emotion is sort of underneath that that's trying to present itself, whether it's joy or sadness. Um, and that, that over time, that guilt sort of can pile up and, and push down the, the sort of core or primary emotions that we're trying to feel. And that can over time lead to this sense of emotional heaviness and depression. Is that roughly accurate? Yes, that is uh, accurate. That in depression, there, there is what we call uh, a strong inner critic, a lot of self-criticism that occurs. So what we try to do with our mindfulness approach is really soften that and help the person to become uh, more self-compassionate and kinder to themselves. And that's something that is actually teachable, that you can help people shift in their attitude about themselves. I like to think of mindfulness as being something like uh, sh shining a, a, a spotlight on a certain area. You may be shining it on uh, your breath, for example, paying attention to your breath or to body sensations or to sounds or something else. But actually, self-compassion is like a lens you place in front of that spotlight. So it can, if you do that, it can really change your attitude. So for example, if you uh, make a mistake in typically in depression, the per person is self-critical and self-blaming, and that leads to more depression really. But if you add self-compassion to the package, the person, person might say, uh, instead of saying, boy, what a dummy I am, they might say, oh, I made a mistake. I can learn from my mistake. Making a mistake is a human characteristic. So uh, everybody makes mistakes, and I don't have to blame myself for being stupid or make or being dumb because I made a mistake. I can, I can be kinder and gentler with myself. Yeah, I think that's you know the way that you laid it out there is is wonderful, and I do want to get into. Um, you know, the mindfulness aspect of this and how powerful it can be and maybe give some of our listeners some real uh, sort of tools and examples that that they can start to use and integrate. Because uh, I know a lot of the people that listen to this show love love that kind of stuff. But I'm actually curious and this I don't I don't think you talk about this in the book. Um, but I'm actually curious from a, a personal place of, you know, what's and, and maybe I don't know if you have the answer to this, but what's sort of like the biological or evolutionary 
uh, sort of function of depression? Like why, why has this uh, sort of evolved within human beings? And it and seems to be uh, really not running rampant, but it's becoming more and more prominent. And so from, from a biological and evolutionary standpoint, why do you feel like we're in this place now in modern culture where, where depression seems to be taking uh, such a, a front and center role within human culture and society? Well, you're asking several things there. Uh, I'll break it yeah. down a little <laughs> bit. One is what role does depression play in evolution? And we don't know uh, really uh, completely why that, why it would occur, but we have some guesses about it because depression may be modeled after experiencing some type of loss. And so if, if you take infants that say they have a separation from their mother, uh, they start to, uh, cry and really want to, uh, restore that attachment to their mother. So, and of course, having a strong attachment to a maternal figure is very important in human development for all kinds of reasons. But certainly in the wild, it would help the, the child's survival by staying close to the mother. So depression could be thought of as when a loss occurs, when a separation, when a loss of attachment occurs, that the child gets distressed. And that may be uh, a model for what happens with depression, that depression, in a sense, serves to pre prevent a loss of attachment. There's some experimental evidence for this. Uh, some people have studied primates and have found this type of thing where there's actually a, a couple of different uh, types of closely related but slightly different monkeys that have been studied. And if they separate the mother from the infant uh, monkey, they find that the monkey expresses a great deal of distress and then forms, uh, becomes anergic. They stop moving around and they curl up and they get into a fetal position and kind of withdraw from the world and are hard to arouse, which in a sense mimics what happens in depression. In the other form of a monkey, these are the macaques. In the other form of uh, the macaque, the uh, when the when the uh, mother is taken away from the infant, the other uh, mother figures in the colony uh, sort of pick up the slack and uh, take on nurturing the separated young monkey. And so they don't fall into the uh, uh, depression-like state. So the social network can help protect them. And this has application for the second part of your question. So why are we having more depression now? We really have some uh, loss of social supports that used to be present in our society. So people live farther away from their important support figures. They may be separated from their families of origin. Uh, there's different stresses that take place in our society that may not have been present earlier. So there's a lot of factors that seem to be playing a role in producing more depression these days than were present earlier in uh, uh, 
regular life. Really interesting. I, I love the way that you <clears throat> outlined that, and then also the the examples um, of the of the different primates. It's really powerful. It it's almost sounds like if I could simplify it just for myself, it almost sounds like what you're saying is that depression has evolved psychologically or biochemically as a means of uh, avoiding avoiding something. It's like an avoidance mechanism, avoiding pain, avoiding separation, avoiding uh, isolation. Is that roughly accurate or how would you sort of summarize that? No, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. It, it, it's, it, may, it may, of course, we can't always say what exactly what, what's going on with evolution, but that would be that would fit with the data that it's a way of avoiding a separation and preserving the survival of the uh, infant. Of course, later on in life, it it becomes less adaptive in some respects uh, because the person who's experiencing depression isn't experiencing the threat to their survival. It may feel to them like they're expressing they're experiencing the threat to their survival. But it isn't like it actually was when they were an infant. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. And you know, it's it's interesting because this kind of ties into one of the questions that I had about your book, because you talk about how the mind is not always your friend, and I love that. I've I've talked about that quite a bit because most of my work is rooted in Jungian psychology and in the shadow, and uh, and really understanding that sometimes the rational mind can sort of become. Uh, the the puppet of the shadow of our unconscious mind, but I would love for you to sort of unpack your uh, your description of that of of why our mind isn't always our friend and, and what that actually means. Well, uh, in depression, as we've been talking, the mind tends to generate a lot of depressive thoughts, and I'll give you an example. This this sort of was my first experience in a, in a sense with uh, this type of thing. When I was in college, uh, I was taking part in a protest against the war in Vietnam, and a group of us students were occupying a college administration building. And I was watching, I had a good spot to observe the whole, uh, whole protest. And after a certain time, the police came, and shortly thereafter, the police formed a line and then began attacking the students using batons and so on. And the next day, I read in the paper that it was just the opposite, that the students attacked the police, which I knew was completely false. And it was my first experience really realizing that what you read in the paper isn't always correct. It's somebody's interpretation of what went on or what is going on, and it may, may not be accurate at all. And I was kind of, I'd say, maybe naive before that and said, if you're reading in the paper, it must be true. Well, that's kind of the same thing with your mind. People tend to believe their mind. If I'm having the thought that somebody's rejecting me, it's the same as, well, they are rejecting me. It's a fact. And if you believe that fact, you're going to end up getting depressed. And so what we teach people in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is precisely that idea that thoughts are not facts. Even the ones you believe most strongly are often not facts. You know, if you <clears throat> if you write an email to a friend of yours and say, let's get together tonight, and you don't get a response from that person, a lot of things can happen in that small interaction. For example, uh, if you're 
feeling depressed, you may interpret the lack of response as being they're rejecting me or they don't care about me or maybe I offended them. And you don't have a chance to really look at that situation except for reacting with a negative response. If you're able to step back from that situation, and this is what we help people do with mindfulness, if you can step back, you may say other things uh, than what your mind generated. You may say, well, maybe they were busy and they didn't get to their emails. Maybe my email went to their spam folder. Or maybe, and I've had this experience numerous times, uh, my outbox wasn't syncing and the message I sent was sitting in my outbox. The person never even got it. And so uh, there's a lot of, if you take those possibilities, then there's much less tendency to get depressed. So what our minds generate has a very powerful effect on our mood. And unfortunately, if you're depressed, you tend to believe the negative thoughts and don't even entertain the more positive possibilities. I love that description. And I think that segues beautifully into, into really just diving into mindfulness. And, you know, in the book, you talk about what mindfulness is and what it is not. And I think this is important because it really has become a, a hot sort of buzzword and, and idea and concept. Um, but I think for many people, mindfulness is still sort of analogous. And so I would love for you to just elaborate a little bit on, on what uh, mindfulness is for you and, and what it is not. Okay, uh, mindfulness is really paying attention to what you're experiencing as you are experiencing it. So it's, it can be, it's like shining that spotlight wherever you intentionally want to shine it. So you may shine it on, uh, on your body sensations, on the feelings in your toes, your feet, your legs. <clears throat> you may shine it on the thoughts that are occurring or the feelings that are present or the sounds that are present in your uh, soundscape, as it were. So you can shine your attention wherever. And there's really two forms of mindfulness. One is sitting kind of meditation or discrete meditation in which you sit or lie and you pay attention to different things like the breath or body sensations or something like that. So it's, you do it for a period of time, five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever you are doing it for. And the other form of mindfulness is what we call dispositional mindfulness. So, for example, as you're walking, you may pay attention to what experiences are going on with, with your feet uh, or your legs. And it really can be quite remarkable as you do that because you begin to notice your heel strikes the ground. Then your foot kind of rolls forward and pushes off with the ball and toes of your feet all the while while the other foot is coming up into the air and again moving forward. So when you start to pay attention to something, it's very powerful. And the key thing with mindfulness is that you're paying attention to something, whether you're sitting or lying still or walking or chopping vegetables whatever you're doing, you're paying attention to it. And this is important, that when you're doing so, your mind will naturally wander. And this is one of the misconceptions uh, and one thing that mindfulness is not. It's not locking your mind onto something and not having it wander. If you 
focus on your breath, for example, after a few seconds, most likely, your mind will start to wander. It'll wander to what am I having for lunch? What am I having for dinner? Or what is this project I need to get done? Or I should have said this to this person or some other thing. And mindfulness is really about saying, oh, my mind wandered. I can congratulate myself on learning that my mind wandered and then gently and kindly bringing the attention back to the object of attention, like the breath. If you take people <clears throat> for, for an example of uh, having uh, a simple exercise, like counting their breaths, beginning with zero and counting each one, each, each, each in-breath up to 10, if you count one breath, two breaths, three breaths, and so on, you'll find very few people can actually count to 10 without their mind wandering. Most people, when they start trying to do this, find their mind wanders by the time they get to three. So our minds tend to wander. And instead of beating yourself up about it and in depression, that's what happens. The person's mind wanders and they say, oh, I'm a lousy meditator. That isn't true at all. Part of the meditation is noticing your mind wandering. So mind wandering is not abnormal and it's really part of the process. And once you realize that, it frees you up quite a bit from being critical of yourself and helping you understand what mindfulness is really all about. I love that description and and just the the sort of normalizing of of the wandering mind, which I think so many so many of us can get caught uh, self deprecating on simply because it it's, it doesn't fit in with maybe what we've read in. Uh, you know, some Buddhist text or a book about mindfulness or, or whatever it is. So I love that you're laying that out. Um, from your perspective, one of the other things that you talk about is um, a stumbling block, which which can be anger and anger's impact on depression. And I've I've seen countless times, time and time again, with men and women alike, that anger can play a very large part in in their relationship to depression. So can you elaborate on this a little bit? Well, depression is often uh, part of, uh, excuse me, anger is often part of depression. It may, in several ways, it may be generated by depression in that a person who's depressed often is quite irritable, irritable and angry with those around them. And, and in turn, depression may be amplified by anger. And in fact, I like to always ask to myself when I'm talking to somebody who's depressed, who are they depressed at? And you often find uh, some good clues as to what might be going on. For example, uh, uh, I saw uh, a woman who had moved to San Francisco, where I'm located, uh, years ago, and she was quite depressed. And her situation was that she had she and her husband had moved to San Francisco because he had gotten a, a spectacular job, you know, the job of a lifetime. But it meant that she had to give up a job that was very meaningful to her. So she came to San Francisco, really had nothing to do, very little thing to occupy her time, except became depressed, depressed about what had transpired. And in talking about it, we were able to understand that even though she could, didn't want to stand in her husband's way, 
the move that had taken place had taken something away from her. She had experienced a loss of her own uh, situation. And as we did that, we began to, instead of reacting to the situation and becoming depressed, she could begin to start responding to it and say, ah, you know, is there an organization like the one I left that I could become involved with? And uh, are there things I could be doing that I'm not doing, uh, volunteering or participating in other cultural events? And as she started to take steps to do that, her depression began to lift. And she actually began began to work at another uh, nonprofit organization like the one she had been at, and her depression really faded into the background. So depression can be uh, related very strongly to anger. And we like to think of a, a technique that can help people deal with anger. It's called RAIN, uh, R-A-I-N. First of all, recognize that you're angry. Ah, there's anger. I'm angry. And then uh, A stands for allowing it, allowing it. So, okay, it's present. And rather than trying to uh, suppress it, I'm going to allow it to be present. There it is. I'm not a bad person for having anger. It's a normal human emotion. And then I stands for investigating it, like we did with that woman. So she could look into what was going on with that anger. And then N stands for non-self, really being able to step out of yourself and observe yourself getting angry about the situation. So it gives you some sense of separation from it, or what we call decentering from it. So instead of being wrapped up in just being angry, you can kind of view yourself going through the process of getting angry and what you're angry about, allowing it to occur, but then noticing what it's about, and then being in a position to what we call like cooking the anger. Instead of letting it eat at you, you're able to really look at it as an event that's happening in your life and even uh, perhaps change your, your viewpoint on it. I'll give you another example. When I was on one of these retreats, a different retreat than the one I mentioned, the high point of the day is the lunch meal. So I sat down, I got my food, I sat down at a lunch table, and I really wanted to uh, focus on eating my food mindfully. Mindful eating is very useful, paying attention to the thoughts and the tastes and uh, the processes involved in eating. So I was really wanting to do that, and I w what began to do so. Then shortly thereafter, a person sat down next to me across from me and started to, to eat. But as they were doing so, they were sniffling and they were sniffling fairly loudly. So it began to uh, get in my way of focusing and get me kind of irritated. And I started to have thoughts like, why are they doing that? Why are they sitting across from me? They should have gone in the corner and sniffled. And I started to get kind of furious that they were depriving me of my, you know, high point of my day. And then I said to myself, well, wait a minute. Instead of getting angry, why don't I bring some compassion to the situation? And when I did that, it shifted things dramatically. I said to myself, well, first of all, this guy's not doing this to me. What I was getting angry at was, was he doing this to me? No. He had allergies or a cold or whatever he had. 
and it wasn't being done to me, and the poor guy himself was suffering. As soon as I shifted that stance to become more compassionate, my anger dissipated, and I was able to go back to focusing on my eating mindfully. And this is true of what uh, Matthew Ricard, a famous Buddhist philosopher, says, compassion is often the antidote for anger. And it's a way of helping yourself take another stance and respond more skillfully to the situation. Mm, that's good. That's really powerful. I like the I like the examples and and uh, yeah, I think I think that most of us uh, most of us can can sympathize or empathize with that because we've we've definitely been there at some point. Maybe not in the exact same position, but um, I think that's very helpful. Um, just in terms of some of the some of the pieces that you also outline in your book, uh, what what would you recommend if someone has sort of maybe identified that they might be um, struggling with depression and that th this is maybe new to them or foreign, or even if it's someone that has been dealing with it for quite a while, where do you usually recommend from a, a practice perspective or, or tools perspective that, that people start to begin engaging with this practice of mindfulness? Where, where do they start? Well, th there's a variety of places to start with. Uh, there's mindfulness programs really, I think, in most communities across the country uh, and across the world, for that matter. And it, you can start in a variety of ways. I mean, you could start with, uh, you know, my book. My book has a number of meditations that are uh, attached to it. There's uh, on my website, stuarteisendrath.com, there are uh, one to three meditations for each chapter, and they're free, and they're uh, you can stream them or download them, and they can give you an introduction to mindfulness. You can also take courses in mindfulness, and there's uh, a number of those available widely, mindfulness-based stress reduction or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy are all available. And then many meditation centers across the country offer uh, some experiences that range from one-day uh, mindfulness experiences to many days, to week-long or even month-long or longer experiences. Uh, I don't recommend anybody try the longer ex uh, ones to, to start with, but there are short ones. Some of them are even just in the evenings at different institutions. So there's a wide variety of ways people can get started with mindfulness. And, of course, there are a number of apps that are available. When I last counted, there was over a thousand apps that were available. And so there's, there's a lot of different doors to enter the world of mindfulness. But I'd recommend uh, that the person have some organized program to get started with, whether it's my book or a formal course, because it's easy to get sidetracked and say, Oh, trying something and oh, I can't do this because their mind is wandering, for example. And they, it's important that they have some feedback to say, okay, mind wandering is normal. It's part of the meditation. And instead of berating yourself or thinking you're just not cut out for mindfulness, it really helps to get some support about what the process involves. And I try to do that in the book. And that's certainly part of what happens in the courses. 
Wonderful. Wonderful. I, I appreciate that. And for everyone that's listening, definitely head on over and, uh, and check out when antidepressants aren't enough, harnessing the power of mindfulness to alleviate depression. I think it really lays out a, a powerful um, program that you can sort of walk through and, and teach yourself. And um, so, Stuart, is there anything else that you want to leave people with just on on depression or, or antidepressants or mindfulness that, that you think that um, that that they should know before we part ways? Well, one thing uh, just to let people know, uh, part of our research uh, showed uh, several things. One is that the mindfulness program helped decrease depression, decrease anxiety, decrease rumination, while it improved mood, it improved uh, self-compassion, and it increased the ability to be mindful. So all of those things were moving in a good direction. And we also showed, interestingly, uh, that actually brain function changed over eight weeks of trying the program so that people, uh, people's brain actually showed a demonstrable shift uh, from certain areas of the brain that were affected by depression back towards a more normal approach. So this is a very powerful technique that actually has brain effects, and it can be useful for many people uh, who want to dive into the mindfulness arena. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, and uh, looking forward to to hearing about more of your work in the in the future, and uh, and maybe having you back on the show if if that suits you at some point, and maybe maybe uh, leading us through a little meditation. So. <laughs> I'm going to have to follow up with you on that front. But thank you so much for joining me on the Man Talk Show. Okay, thanks for having me. And for everyone else out there that's listening, thank you so much for joining us today. Don't forget to head on over to whatever platform you are listening to us on. We're now on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes. Leave us a rating and review. goes a long way to getting us into the ears and onto the phones of people around the world. So thank you so much for joining us. Until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. 